All right, so I have the privilege to introduce a good friend of mine, a good friend of ours as a church. So we have a church that we partner really well with um, and are very like-minded with in Portland, in downtown Portland and different areas of Portland, called Imago Day. Um, and we've been in relation with them for a while, and it, we are privileged to be able to have, in my opinion, one of the best preachers I've ever heard, a very good friend and an incredible leader that's going to be here with us today. We promised Rick sunshine, and we haven't really come through fully on that. Uh, but hopefully we can pray for that for the rest of the week for him and his family. But without further ado, would you guys put your hands together for Rick McKinley as he comes to the stage. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, bro. Good morning. It's great to be with you, Redemption. 64 and sunny in California, uh, no, Portland. Wow. We, we got in late on the flight, so that affected that comment. <laughs> it's so good to be with you at uh, Redemption Church. We love your pastors, and uh, so this is the first time I've I'm kind of cutting in and out, but that's okay, because there's only so much you can really hear of a sermon anyways. <laughs> so, I mean, I've been at it a while, I know, I get it. Um, we're from Portland. Anybody from Portland? Been to Portland? Yeah. There's only ever a few of us, but Portland is proudly progressive. And uh, if you've ever seen Portlandia, the thing about Portland is we don't get the jokes in Portlandia because it's true, right? The chicken you're about to eat does have a name and a pedigree, and it was, you know, all that craziness is there. Portland is home to one of the largest naked bike rides. Um, yeah. And it's legal because it's art, of course. You know, what isn't? And they never tell you what the going to be because... I guess that's part of the fun. And, but it's also never the people you were hoping were going to join in. It's another thing I noticed. We're not talking about five odd people, though. We're talking about 13,000 people. Every, yeah, that's where we get you. It's not like uh, we're trying to be weird. We're weird. Legitimately. Which is why we call the church Imago Dei, which in Latin means image of God, but in Portland, it just sounds weird, right? And they're more likely to join a cult than a church, so we thought, let's go with it. <laughs> I know you laughed, but it worked. Uh, you all are in the book of Ephesians, which obviously is such a fantastic book, and I get to preach one of the beautiful pictures of the gospel um, in just a summary, these ten verses. But one of the things that you notice about our culture today is we're extremely polarized. I don't know if they have it in Arizona, but we have this social media thing called Facebook in Oregon. <laughs> no, I know you have it. Um, and, and depending on if you're the left or the right, you, you realize that we live in these echo chambers where we just sort of tell people who are like us, who are part of the same group, things that we will all agree with. And there are all kinds of these groups that are set up all over the world from 
gender pronouns to gun rights. And there are no conversations or dialogues going on. Right? The conversation has been decided. And then it's just ascribed to different channels on TV. It's funded well by the media. And so if you come along and go, you know, I want to talk about ideas and the meaning of life and where we came from and what it's all about, you find yourself that you really aren't going to be heard. And, and I believe Christians today, we do one of two things. One is we're going to create our own group who can sort of scream back to the other people. And, and some do that. But the vast majority of us just go quiet. Like the, if, if you were in a conversation at work or school that was talking about the meaning of life, very few of us would be like, well, I got a theory, right? We just don't want to be outed as one of those people. And so this broad stroke stereotype that sort of paints a picture of what a Christian is has actually worked in the favor of the world because it's starting and has been for a long time to silence us in some of our most important truths. When Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians to the church of Ephesus, he wasn't saying, this will be a great book for you to use in your private devotions. It was public truth. It was to be read aloud. It was to be traveled through the churches. Because the Gospel is public truth. Christ was crucified in the public square. And everybody knew about it. And so as we, as we come to this passage today, we're going to look at a, a picture that God paints of the Gospel and all of its beauty. But I want us to remember that it is first and foremost a gospel that is to be publicly announced. That's what gospel means. Good news. The announcement of good news. And the idea of news wasn't like, you know, we, we've, we've sort of enculturated the language, but in the day it would have been known, this is the news. Right? Like the newspaper. This is the news. <laughs> Jesus is the Lord, not Caesar. And everyone goes, whoa, that's intense. They didn't have Facebook. So let's look at verses 1 through 3 of Paul's message here. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. The first truth that the Gospel teaches us is what is the human condition? Is a conversation that happens with philosophers and sociologists. It is a conversation that goes on day in and day out in subtle ways. Nietzsche 
130 years ago. We know the statement where Nietzsche said, God is dead and we have killed him. The assumption is, because he was a devout atheist, that we all assumed he thought that was great. And even though he was a devout atheist, he was wise enough to look into the future. And he realized that God was dead because no longer did we think we were the center of the universe and through science and other things about the enlightenment that we could sort of self-determine. But he saw that you can't simply take God out of Christianity and maintain its morality. These things are all connected. And he did believe that it would take a different kind of human being someday in the future to evolve that would be able to create a moral will of goodness. And what he said is, what he feared was that more often than not, humanity would move towards nihilism, which essentially means there is no meaning. You can create one if you want, or you could just piddle your days away, or you can commit suicide. And that that nihilism, as we all are trying to fill this meaning void, would ultimately lead to totalitarianism which means there would be some group that would emerge that would define what ultimate truth was. And then they would force it through government force and regulation. He predicted that 100 million people would die in the next 100 years under totalitarian regimes. Isn't that crazy? That was 150 years. A hundred years before Auschwitz, before Stalin, before Rwanda. And way before Nietzsche, there was Paul. And Paul described the exact same conditions. That the human condition is bent in on itself. And because it is without God and bent in on itself, it by nature, moves into the way of nihilism, gratifying the desires of the flesh, which may be a desire for power, it may be a desire for truth, it may be a desire for pleasure, but everybody writes their own ticket. And what's left is this void still. When I was 18, we had, I had never gone to church in my life it wasn't something we did as a family. I didn't know anything about it. We met some Mormons one time because they, they uh, biked by our house. Surprisingly, they do this a lot. And, and I remember asking my mom, like, what's the deal with Mormons and Christians? Or She said, well, we're American, so we're Christian. So I was like, okay, that's cool. And... And I, I, I partied a lot in high school, and so when I graduated, I went to Chico State, which was the number one party school in the nation at that time, in a particular journal that I read. And, um, <laughs> and I thought, now that's a degree that I could pursue. And when I got there, I literally thought I had died and went to heaven. I mean, 
900 people at a 50 keg party with two live bands, and this, there's another one just like it across the street, and everyone's on bikes, and at night they have to have lights, but you could see them just crashing into everything, and you're like, this is fantastic. But shortly after that, there was definitely a meaning void where like, there's only so many times you could do that. Only so many things you could try. And, and it was a very spiritual. Northern California, around Chico, it's really beautiful. And so there's a lot of new age. And I would walk by and there'd be people sort of meditating and wearing crystals. And I remember just being, man, that looks good. What is that? They're connecting to something. I go back to my room and try to cross my legs. <laughs> and they don't really do that. And so I got them as close as I could, and I was just in total agony. And I'm making noises, but they're not like, oh, they're more like, oh. <laughs> so I quickly gave that one up because... Not because of beliefs, just agility was <laughs> one of my main problems. Like, what are, you, what are your issues with the New Age movement? It's mostly ligaments, and <laughs> I can't stretch really well. I was a lineman in uh, football. So I went home and continued sort of this dark journey. Continued to drink, started blacking out, things got worse and worse. But what, what happened was I was touching in that, that point of nihilism. My dad made money. He did pretty well, so money wasn't very attractive. And my personality is just bent to be like, what is real? What is true? And it just became darker and darker to the point where you're like, I don't even know why we're here. Why should we keep living in a world with suffering? What I was tapping into is verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Was I have tried to gratify these desires, and they haven't led to life. I have tried to quit these desires, and I can't. I am bent, and I am broken, and I can't will it to change. And I don't know what the point or the purpose is. Now, there's other ways to respond than I did. You could camp out on an agenda a political issue, whatever that thing is. But no matter what it is, it will never hope. Even if you get your will, right? Let's say that certain group got all the power. They would use it to oppress. And more often than not, it is the vulnerable among us who suffer at the hands of this nihilistic, reality. Hopelessness and meaninglessness is the way of the world. And we can polish it up any way we want. It's the same thing. And the enemy traps us into a hell on earth, literally, where we are just reduced to animals driven by the need to gratify our, the desires of our flesh. And it could be a sin thing, or it could be something as ugly as racism. Right? That there's some need in us for power, or pleasure, or comfort, or security. 
There is a fear that we have taken with us out of the garden that we cannot get back to, no matter how far down the rabbit hole we go. And the Gospel answers the large question that is happening in public life and public discourse. What is the human condition? And we could say, well, I'm okay, you're okay. How has that worked in the history of the world? Right? It hasn't worked. And it, we have not evolved to a new state. But we do have an answer when we see mass shootings. And we all wonder, what's the problem? What's wrong? Well, evil's the problem. And it exists in my heart. We are dead in sin. And it's so important that we carry this truth in the humility of our own sinfulness. We can't just make another camp that says we're right and you're wrong. What all we can do is say, I know how broken I am. And my own brokenness seems to resonate with the brokenness and sin I see in the world. And so if this is the condition, which I believe it is and I believe history tells us it is, the question becomes then where does hope come from if I can't make it up, if I can't independently create it, where will it come from? And Paul answers that question for us. What is the hope of humanity? Verse 4. Verse 4 says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Our hope, the world's hope, is that in the God of mercy, is overflowing with love for His image-bearing people. And He regenerates the human spirit through a massive infusion of grace. And that grace is named Jesus. Jesus took on the fullness of the human condition. And so, there's a couple ways to look at it. That this truth, that meaning, that hope should come from me, from the individual. Now, think about that. How arrogant is that? That, that this Rick McKinley, this infinitesimal speck on a giant planet that actually is an infinitesimal speck in a giant universe, that actually is an infinitesimal speck in a galaxy upon galaxy of an ever-expanding universe, that that Rick McKinley, yeah, I pretty much know the truth. I know what fullness of reality is. That's a faith step too. Our faith step says, 
that Jesus took on the human condition. He did the thing that the first Adam couldn't do. And he lived a life of faithful obedience. He lived a life of trusting security with the Father. He loved and he served his fellow humans above himself. He died on the cross and he conquered the grave with your name on it. He resurrected from the grave and ascended to the right hand of God so that He could send His Holy Spirit into our lives to make us alive again with His very life. And He did that so that you could be united to the Father through the Son by the Spirit. So that you could belong to this holy community of Father, Son, and Spirit that has existed for all times. It means that creation had a point to it that the Creator God would become one of His creatures so that His creatures could share in the life of God Himself. It's a communion of love. And so it's very important that our understanding of hope is not just that we're forgiven. Yeah, I did some bad stuff, but I'm forgiven. It's not just moralism that says, well, I, I can get my life together. It's not just that you have biblical answers. It's not just that you become the right political ideology. It is this truth that is our hope. Jesus Christ, our life, is the hope of the world. Not just for me privately and personally. It is that. But it is for all people who bear God's image. Our truth means that His faithfulness, His faithful life is your faithful life. We often think about Jesus, you know, He took my place on the cross, but He also took your place in humanity so that His faithfulness to the Father is accounted to you. I'm not trusting that Rick Manley can drag this dead body of flesh around and like twist it around to make it be good. I'm trusting that Jesus Christ and He's my hope. And then I can add my little bits of goodness to it. His death for our sin becomes our righteousness. The Holy Spirit becomes our source of life. His ascension into heaven is now our position in a fallen world. And His relationship with His Father becomes our relationship with His Father. It's why Paul can say, by grace you have been saved. It takes a massive infusion of grace to change the nihilistic wormhole that is our life. And God did it with purpose. When I became a Christian, shortly after Chico, I, I went home and I kind of kept doing it. I was doing it and I woke up one day and I decided I should go to church. I don't know why I thought that. 
Uh, and so I went to the church that was closest to my house. And it happened to be Palm Sunday, which is actually a really good time to come if, you want to, if you're interested in what the church believes. So I showed up, and I literally thought they were going to read my palm. I mean, it, it's not even a joke. I, I mean, I, how would I have assumed, no, the palm is when we wave before Jesus on a donkey doing something. Like, I didn't know any of those stories. So I was just sort of like... <laughs> there was a lot of questions that they were asking me in those first few months. But... But one of the things that happened to me in hearing that story is that somehow it made sense, I believed it, and I was counting on it to be true. Which means that though I didn't have words or language or any of that stuff, God made me alive in that moment. He made me alive perhaps before that when I was like, I should go to church. That's not like what's not in my thinking. It was funny because my dad never went to church, like I said, and as I leave, he's like, where are you going? I'm like, church. He just looks at me like, what? And then he said, if you go there, those people will come to your house. <laughs> and I remember looking at him like, what do you know? I mean, you've, we've never gone to church. So, so after I went Sunday on Wednesday, there were two little guys in suits at the door. And I was like, wow, they really do come to your house. <laughs> Dad knows more than I thought. And so, as Paul makes this statement, by grace we have been saved, we're transitioning not just from the human condition, but to the human hope that God was not content to let the world drift into a nihilistic sort of reality unto itself. But He stepped in, in Christ, the Creator, to be our hope in our life. Which leads to this final aspect of public truth, which is then what is the human purpose? Why are we here? Verse 8, Paul says this. He says, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is making it really clear that this is not private, personal, individualized truth that was supposed to be cloistered behind the walls of the church. But this is public truth. And that God created His people so that we would figure out what those purposes are. And ultimately, there's, there's sort of five, four or five that I've come up with. The first is, as people who have experienced that massive infusion of grace, as those who have come to the realization that Jesus is my life, that we would walk humbly in the grace given to us with great gratitude in worship. Because we know above all things that without that, we are lost. Now there's an irony that 
that the stereotype of Christians is that we're often arrogant, sort of bigoted, know-it-alls. And one thing that I noticed when I walked into the church as a young kid is that, yeah, I knew I had no play in this game. I mean, he handed me a Bible. I didn't own one. I started reading it because I thought it's a book. You read it from the beginning. I got to Genesis 9, and I was like, he begot, he begot. They all live to be whatever. And by the way, after Genesis 3, it's a train wreck. Okay? <laughs> Rape, murder, incest. Like, it's not good advertising. That's all I'm saying. And yet you could feel this sense within Christian communities that said, well, we're better than that other church. And we have this doctrine right. And there can be this sense of arrogance that we're better than those pagans out there. And what, what was interesting to me is then I start reading Scripture and I'm like, There's, how can we find room for arrogance? How, I mean, look what he says. By grace you're saved. Not of yourself. Not by works. It was a gift from God. You know, it's not a gift is not a forced thing. No one can boast. And yet, we do. Right? We name call. We pretend people are idiots that don't believe. We have this arrogance that, that really does believe, well, there must have been something special about me. Why else would he have picked me? We stand in solidarity at the foot of the cross with every single person to ever walk the earth. And we stand there in our need. Whether that's the pharisaical, far-right fundamentalist, or the person struggling with gender dysphoria, or whatever that thing is, we stand in solidarity. And so... As people who are so dependent on God intervening for us, how can we not look with compassion? I'm not giving us ammo to win a debate in the public square. We don't need soldiers. This is a vaccine that will cure a worldwide plague. So we need physicians and nurses care. Jesus said something about that. The purpose of humanity is to discover not just that we have received this grace, but you are the object of God's love, His grace, His kindness, and His mercy. One of the things that I struggled with knowing that I needed grace was that I immediately wanted to pay back. Right? I didn't want to be on the like owing end of anything. So I tried super hard to be good, and it just sort of kept going bad. And, and, and being around Christians wasn't that helpful, by the way. Because... Okay, I'm...
fumbling and I keep losing. Uh, no. <laughs> you don't want to go there. That's surely in need of grace. What I discovered is I really had this sense of shame that was not willing to receive God's love, right? It's one thing to go, yeah, I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. It's a whole other thing to go, I believe that I am the object of God's love, that he wanted you to be brought into this union of Father, Son, and Spirit. That he desires that not only you, but the whole world will learn to walk as God's beloved son or daughter. That is your purpose in life, to get familiar with your own belovedness. And that's a lot harder than just saying I'm a sinner. Because some of us are still stuck in a lot of shame, a lot of fear that if we were fully known, Man, this is quite a service. <laughs> There's a lot happening here. Woo! <laughs> Are we uh, podcasting this bad boy? Because it's, it's going to be worth something. But here's my last point, <laughs> and I promise I'm going to stop because this is... The last point of the human purpose is that we would participate in the purposes of God. Right? When, when Paul says that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to four good works, I think most of us think, okay, he saved me, and now he's got a to-do list for me, and as Christians, we should be about God's chores. And, and it's like, I have something I'm supposed to do. The, the reality is it's, it's not work in that sense. It's work as participation with God. When... When my kids were little, my daughter and my son are 20-ish now, but they used to be little twins. And in Portland, we have these things called um, trees. And they have leaves, these things called leaves. And around October, they all fall off, and they're a mess. And so we had to rake them up every year. And... I don't know if they still make them. I imagine they do. They have these little versions of rakes and shovels that for little kids. So we had those for them. And they were so stoked. To, it changes around 15. But five, they were so excited to go out there and to rake up leaves with me. And as I raked them up, they'd be raking them up, and they'd make piles and jump in them. And and. and it wasn't so much that they were going, you know, I got to get that done. I mean, there's a lot of leaves. It's going to be rainy. It's going to be hard to get them out of there. Tells his sister, come on, you know, this is our responsibility. It's our work. That's why they made us. <laughs> they created us for work. He just loved to participate in what I was doing. Now, imagine the same child who sits at home while dad's out raking, saying, come on, come with me, it'll be fun, who goes, you know, I just realized my shovel's not that big, my rake's really small, I don't 
add a lot to what you're doing. You're going to do it anyways. You're sort of in control. And so I'm just going to stay here. I mean, we'd think a couple, first we'd think that's a very advanced five-year-old to have <laughs> thoughts like that. It's very impressive. But we'd also assume that something is wrong in that relationship. And many of us have had that kind of father, perhaps, where it just was like, man, every time I, I have a little skin in the game, and there's just judge, judge, judge. And, and so we want to project that onto God, but Jesus is here to announce that you have a different father, a father who desires that you participate with him in his purposes, in his work. John really captures this most clearly in the Gospels. In John chapter 5, Jesus is talking after he healed on the Sabbath and was getting a lot of flack. And he said, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he'll show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it to. That's what Paul's talking about. The Son has given us his life. But the work that we're called to is to participate like Jesus did in the Father's work. Here's what he says just to 14, John 14. He says, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and that the Father's in me and that the words I say to you, I don't speak from my own authority, but it's the Father living in me who is doing this work? Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father's in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. Even greater works than these, because I'm going to the Father. That's pretty heavy. Right? That wasn't like, okay, I'll do the chores. It's like, I want my children to participate with me in bringing my kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to stand for justice and mercy. I want you to be bold and unashamed of the gospel. I want you to be in on the places that I want to heal in this hurting world. I want you to be my voice to bring meaning to the vacuum of meaninglessness. And I think for most of us, we can sometimes resist those invitations. Part of what's beautiful about participating in the work of God is that you don't get to do it without relationship. Right? That's what makes it his work. So you have to lean in. And actually, participation is the path to transformation. Like it's when we participate with God that we recognize, man, he has a whole lot more love for these people than I do. And I got to get that love. So, Father, I need your love. I think about it. I was talking to a lady one day. And she said, I, I want to do something in the church, but I don't like junior hires. I don't want to be around them. They drive me crazy. 
blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, so it sounds like you don't have any joy when you're with junior high kids. Absolutely. And you just don't have patience for them, right? And it's hard for you to be kind and gentle when you're with them. Well, the good news is I know someone who has joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, and he loves junior hires. Maybe you should lean in there and be transformed by the fruit of the Spirit. Right? What we lack in order to do the Father's work, the Father gives us to participate with him. And so Redemption Church, as we consider this gospel message, it absolutely is for you. That you would understand that your bentness has been taken away by Christ. That you are the beloved son and daughter of God. And that you are critical to his purposes in that he wants you to work with him. But this is truth for out there. For you to stand in the public square, not bashing people, but out of humility and compassion to announce that there is meaning and hope in this empty world. That Jesus Christ is the whole world's hope. And that you have been sent as doctors and nurses, right, to bring this healing bomb of the gospel and to participate with the Father in his garden that he's making beautiful again. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So humbled by our smallness and our helplessness and our hopelessness. And yet so grateful that you did not let us go. But God, who is rich in mercy. God, we could say those two words, but God. We could think about our marriage, but God showed up. We can think about our lives, our past, our brokenness, our sinfulness, our propensities. But God, you've made Jesus Christ our life and our hope. And so how amazing then, not only to be washed by that grace, to be, have the love of God poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, but then to be invited to participate in your purposes, to bring healing, love, and redemption to the world. I pray that for my brothers and sisters here in this community, that they would experience the God who is full of mercy and overflowing with love has come to be their life. Amen.